1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Elk Shape Podcast with me,
2: Dan the Fitness Man. And uh, tonight we're recording in Idaho, back at our cabin. And I've been wanting to get this guy on here quite a while. I've known him 36 years And he goes by the name Dad, and his name is Rod Staten, and he's my hunting buddy. And you're here. Welcome, Dad. It's good to be here. Cool. So, Elk Shape Podcast, just a couple of notes. Currently, I've been kicking ass on my website and uh, pimping my partners and getting things dialed. So the first thing I want to tell you guys about that I'm excited is... Dad, we've been wearing KinoTrek boots since 2010. Uh, yes. Between the two of us, we probably have double-digit boots around here. Yep. But uh, do you like the hard scramble or do you like the high top? Or?
1: I like the high tops with the ankle support. I do a lot of uh, – I seem to find ways to fall down a lot uh, pursuing elk, and I like the extra ankle support. I don't want any ankle issues. So the pair I've got right now, uh, I'm going through my second retread on. Mm -hmm. I sent them in and uh, paid a nominal fee, and they put new treads on them. I also found out a secret about those boots. You never want to sit them by your wood stove. No. And dry them out. You always want to let them air dry away from a heat source if you stick them next to the wood stove. That little rubber piece that's on the front will separate from the boot. Yep. And uh, I actually sent a pair back to them and accused them of faulty craftsmanship. And they called me and they said, you would not have happened to set these boots next to a wood stove, would you? And uh, (laughs) being the honest man that I am, I said, actually, I set them by the wood stove about uh, 27 times during elk season. Yeah. So, yeah, I love them.
2: And the other thing while we're talking about boot maintenance is we've – I've touched on this before is you don't want to use, like, mink oil on Kinetrek boots. You actually – they make a specific boot grease to put on, but it's really just beeswax is what you want to do, and that'll, you know, add longevity to your boot. But the reason why I bring Kinetrek up is they're a partner of mine. I work closely with them. We have a promo code for you listeners. The promo code is all one word, elk shape. And if you put that in, uh, when you buy a pair of boots, when you put that in, when you're buying your next pair of boots, uh, you'll get $75 value gaiters, can attract gaiters, to pair up with your boots, which is awesome. And you can buy just their Bridger Hikers, which I think is like a $150 shoe, and still use that code and get those gaiters included. Also, part of my ass-kicking has been my website, got new tees up there, they're Under Armour locker tees with um, some artwork that I had a local artist draw up, Discipline, Freedom uh, stole that from Jocko but it's got the mountains and check out that shirt, order it, it'll be a friendly reminder every day of what you're training for and de- delayed gratification uh, we have 21 Days to Elk Shape program and uh, that's a three week program to get your ass in going and it includes shooting under duress as well as backpack specific workouts I'm pretty proud about it and it's got video links in there that you can watch only if you have the pdf so check that out we have the train to hunt book that I wrote about eight years ago that's on the website that's an ebook for very cheap and then I'm dropping two new things coming up you can skype with me if you want I'm going to charge a fee for that but if you want help or advice on nutrition or fitness And you want to talk to someone who is in the trenches and is a hunter, we can do that. And the other thing is I got a transformation diet I just made for those that need to lose a significant amount of weight. That is on there as well. And so check out the website, free workouts. I put my training journal up on there for you to watch. And you can look up all the workouts I do and you can steal them if you want. It's free, totally free. And you can find the podcast and everything else. But... Anyways, got that out of the way. Let's talk shop, Dad. So we're bringing you on. It's Spring Bear. It's 2018. This is our first time up here. We hunt out of North Idaho, and it's an over-the-counter unit like many units in North Idaho. I wanted to talk a little bit about do-it-yourself bear hunting, which is something that I think is awesome and more people should do. I want to talk about why hunting bears is important for those that maybe have never heard of bear hunting or um maybe we have non-hunters on here listening so we'll talk about that and um this is dangerous having you on because you know me better than just about anyone and I might have to edit anything you say but uh we'll talk about our elk hunting relationship and how that's pretty dynamic and fun and cool and uh we usually swear at each other a few times uh, elk season so let's talk about you for a second How did you get started in hunting?
1: Well, I come from a family of hunters in the state of Georgia. My dad was not a hunter, but one of my grandfathers was a very avid squirrel hunter, and I know people from the Northwest probably laugh at that, but... I just laughed a little, but go ahead. In the South and the Southeast, squirrel hunting is quite a skill, and then... I had an uncle that hunted cottontail rabbits with, with dogs and uh, he hunted whitetail deer and turkeys and I was fortunate enough that he took me along with him several times and when I was 13 years old I shot my first whitetail buck with a 30 30 lever action rifle. It was an awesome experience in the North Georgia mountains. Uh, that kind of got the whole whole ball rolling. But with my uncle, uh, I'll just say this about him. He is uh, just turned 90 years old. He was deer hunting up until age 86. And uh, if he wasn't trout fishing, he was whitetail hunting. If he wasn't whitetail hunting, he was squirrel hunting. If he wasn't squirrel hunting, he was rabbit hunting. If he wasn't doing any of those, he was in Florida and he was looking for land uh, to hunt on in Florida and South Georgia. So that's kind of what got me going, hanging out with him.
2: So he took you at a young age. When did you first actually get to go hunting yourself for, let's say, deer, a big game animal?
1: I didn't get to go actually very much until in 1973. Uh, my mom and stepdad relocated to Coeur Idaho, and that uh, was quite a transition, but I pulled into Coeur Idaho from the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, moved here and found out that a lot of guys that I played football with and hung out with liked to hunt, so I took my 1968 Chevy Impala up some logging roads and parked it and grabbed my 30-30 (laughs) and walked down some logging roads three or four miles and saw a mule deer buck and shot it and gutted it out and drug it back to my Impala and put it in the trunk and and took it home. Took it to Eggers Meats and had it um, processed into salami and from there on out, I was I was pretty much addicted. And then another big deal uh, that happened in 1974 was during elk season, all of my friends, when they shot a bull, would uh, tie the racks to the front of their pickup trucks and cruise the main street in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, cruise it, uh, showing off their elk rack. So I kind of got interested in elk hunting through that.
2: So, interested is one way to put it. So, we'll kind of fast forward a little bit. Um growing up, somehow we moved to Washington. You made you got married, you made babies. Here I am. I I have some pretty early memories of following you around in the woods grouse hunting and I actually remember complaining Believe it or not, that all we ever ate was deer meat. I remember complaining to my mom, like, "Oh, deer's on the menu again." Uh, so, what was up with that? We just—is that
1: what we lived off? Uh, no, it was actually uh, a result of my passion for hunting whitetail bucks. So, back in the early '80s, I was the pastor of a small rural church. I had just graduated from Bible college and we moved out into the countryside um, outside of Spokane, Washington. Beautiful 80, 100-acre, 100 150-acre farms. Uh, all of them grew alfalfa, and the place was loaded with deer. So uh, opening day of whitetail season, um, I would be out, and many of the parishioners of the church had property, and they let me hunt on it. And I think they thought it'd get them a little closer to God. If Clearly. The, the preacher boy come out and hunt on their property. But uh, I was a great, magnificent, three-point whitetail killer. I mm-hmm. uh, never killed a big whitetail. I saw some, but uh, basically I would have my buck pretty much within one week of the season opener. And uh, I was a meat hunter. And we basically uh, lived off of whitetail. A lot of people would bring me their bears that they would kill or their whitetail even had guys bring me elk quarters. And uh, we would cook that up for you kids when you were small.
2: Yeah, I remember eating wild game always. All right. So, obviously, deer hunting was your jam. You never got into elk hunting per se, but I do remember you going on your first elk hunting trip. I would say after having kids. Yes. And that was in Durango.
1: Durango, Colorado. Uh, the same uncle that that introduced me to being an outdoorsman and a true sportsman. He uh, called me up and said he um, had a hunting spot down in Durango, Colorado, and. He invited me down to uh, check out the hunting spot. Basically, he was there hunting mule deer. But my two cousins that were close to my age uh, wanted to go on an elk hunt. And they had some local boys that you could give them cash, and they would uh, take you back in on horseback. And they had a camp set up, and they dropped us off. And we went down to Durango, and basically... uh, Hunted the uh, Silverton train tracks, and but we rode in about 10 miles on horseback and dropped my two cousins and I back in there. It was during a rifle hunt. I think they called it the third rifle hunt in Colorado at that time.
2: I think they still do. Nice.
1: And uh, we hunted back there for seven days uh, and... It was a wonderful experience. Um, I was hunting at eleven thousand feet, and I really, really struggled with altitude sickness, and so did my cousins. Uh, I don't think we were prepared for that. consequently we we really didn't know how to hunt elk. We had no clue. We just basically put on our white tail mentality and snuck around the woods and uh, But interestingly enough, Uh, The best part of the trip was uh, I had hiked up this ridge till dark, and it was a beautiful full moon night in the Rockies, 11,000 feet. The, The view was stunning. I was blown away. I felt like I was on heaven's doorstep at every moment. And I was walking back to camp, and I got close to camp, and these coyotes went off. And, I mean, they went off, and there must have been... 10, 15 of them, and you know how they can sound. Well, my poor cousins from Georgia had never heard a coyote. Really? Never. Yeah, they didn't have coyotes back then at that time. Okay. In in the south. They've since migrated there. And uh, when I got back to camp, they had this roaring fire going, and they had their guns out, and they were scared to death. They thought they were wolves, and you know, and it was kind of funny watching how scared they got, but actually the outfitter came back to pick us up, and we were riding out, and the outfitter was really cocky and realized he had some greenhorns with him, but I was the last guy on a horse, and I looked over, and I looked across this canyon, and I saw Five Point Bull looking straight at me, and I was whistling and trying to get everybody to stop, and no one would stop. So I finally jumped off my horse and went and got down and got my scope out and and checked out this bull. And I was waiting for the, the guy to uh, tell me that it was a legal bull because back then it had to be a four-pointer better for you to shoot it. And he didn't believe I actually saw an elk. And then finally, he got the whole train of horses stopped, and he comes over and throws up his glass, and he goes, oh, man, that's a shooter, shoot it. Well, it took so long that when I was ready to squeeze it off, the bull whirled around and ran up the mountain. But from that moment on, I was absolutely intrigued with elk hunting.
2: <clears throat> so then we, um, we're going to keep fast-forwarding. So that was the only elk hunt you kind of went on. And then, obviously, you coached all our sports and went to all our games and did the dad life thing. So I finally graduated high school. I decided to not pursue college baseball. I stay home. And I told you, you know, we had gone deer hunting when we could in junior high, but put it on the back burner after that. Um, But that was enough to give me a taste of hunting in my early years, so pretty stoked on it. Had a really good time hunting with you. It was always an adventure. And it was always just dad time. It was really cool. So we decided to go deer hunting once I graduated high school. And, of course, we, you marched me out to some public land on the backside of Mount Spokane, And we were scouting for deer for opening weekend, and you found elk.
1: Yeah, I did. I, uh, we were scouting, and I looked up, and in this opening, and I saw three bachelor bulls. Uh, a 5x5, five five, a 4x4, four four, and a 3x3 three three, just standing there looking at me at about 150 yards away. And I basically just said, holy smokes, we, we got to go get an elk tag. Yep. We've got to go get an elk tag. So uh, we went to town and we bought elk tags. And then we bought the Primo Primo's Beginners
2: cassette tape.
1: Cassette tape, uh, cow call, and bugle. It was all in a...
2: Was in it a, Jim uh, Horn? Jim Horn. Jim Horn from or- La Grande, Oregon.
1: Yeah.
2: He was teaching us how to elk call, and we were practicing yeah. our uh, elk calls with our Terminators. and.
1: Yeah, well, we were practicing on the way to elk hunting, listening to the tape, and trying to do the call. And we got up there... We got up there plenty early, unloaded the four-wheeler and, and uh, took off around this gate and went back there, I'd say maybe a mile and a half, two miles. And I said, okay, Dan, here's what we're going to do. Uh, you're going to go sit down over there. We could see that the trees were thin. We could see between the trees. I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to cow call. We did that, and I don't think I cow called... 15 minutes maybe at the most and I heard a boom (laughs) and I went uh running towards you uh on a straight line and you go I just shot an elk and I'm like "Bull, you didn't shoot an elk it's probably a deer right and you're like no I shot an elk and I uh so we went down to where the where the elk was when you shot it, and I saw these monstrous bull tracks going straight down the mountain. I mean, just dirt was thrown everywhere, and, and uh, we tracked it down, and there it was. Nice five-point bull. So why in the world did
2: you pick that spot? Was it near where you saw them before, and why did you tell me to sit where you sit? Why did you go? Did you just guess instincts? What were you thinking?
1: I just had seen the bulls close to there. And we were in kind of a bowl, so I figured, all right, they're gonna be able to hear this call back here and I know they're bachelored up and I know they're back here. So it was it was happenstance, dumb luck and uh, you know, just pretty much a god thing, I think. Yeah. And, I was- you know, it was like An experience that I'll never forget. It
2: set me on a completely different course in my life. It was a
1: life-changing event. It was a life-changing event for both of us because uh, we were so uneducated about elk hunting that we actually went back uh, and got the four-wheeler and went back and hooked the trailer that we towed the four-wheeler with. Yep. And uh, for those of you that don't know, in Washington, there's gates on most public land, and you can't take a four-wheeler back there. I was kind of panicking. So you remember where I took that four-wheeler and that trailer? Oh, yeah. I took it straight down a ravine, straight around the gate, and up the other side, popping wheelies all the way up, pulling this old trailer. And we went back to where the elk was, and we literally... Took a rope and dragged that elk down to a Old Skid Road mm-hmm. with a rope, the whole elk. We were so uneducated. We, we gutted didn't know it to like break. a whitetail. Yeah, we gutted it like a whitetail. Which uh, was an
2: experience in it itself, seeing guts that big.
1: That big, and feet, the size of the feet. And I'm like, oh my God, what are we going to do with this thing? So, believe it or not, we actually got it into this little four-foot-wide by six-foot-long trailer that had an actual truck axle under it. Yep. And we got the elk in there, and I don't know if you remember this, but we were trying to drive out, and the front end of the four-wheeler kept coming up in the air. Yep. And you sat on the front of the four-wheeler. very front. And we finally get back to the gate, and lo and behold, here's three game wardens standing there. Yeah,
2: which I'd never had an interaction with one. No. and You know, since I was 10 and took a test. You know, they were teaching hunter safety yeah. and that wasn't fun. They were pretty they were pretty pissed that we went behind the gate to get the elk.
1: So, I knew enough to know that I'd read the game recs and they said that the only situation where you could take a motorized vehicle behind the gate
2: at was, that time
1: was to retrieve a downed animal. So, Um, they asked us a few questions and the thing I guess that bothered me and if I could coach up a game warden, I would probably tell them that, you know, whenever you encounter a hunter, you need to understand you're dealing with a customer, a customer that pays to be doing the activity that they're doing. So therefore you need to treat them with respect and, I you weren't aware of this, but uh, after they pretty much asked us ten thousand questions and then said, okay, you know it's a good deal, uh, you were over messing around, and I I walked back over to the three K wardens, and I said, look guys, uh, I'm a little upset with you, and they like, well why? And I says, well, you got a sixteen year old boy here.
2: I think that, I was eighteen. No, you were eighteen. Excuse me. That's still, right. you were eighteen. I go, you got probably an eighteen year old boy
1: here. Neither one of us have killed an elk before, and he's excited beyond belief, and so am I, and not a one of you looked at him and said, congratulations, great job. Right. So they all, whether you remember it or not, went remember. back to you and said, hey, man, nice job. Yep. Nice job on your elk. Yep. So, anyways, long story short, we took that thing and to a friend's barn and hoisted it up with a chain hoist and took pictures, and I... Climbed up on a six-foot step ladder and we skinned it out. Took the uh, meat into a butcher and had it all. Butchers came up. to us. Yeah, that's right. Mobile came, meats. Mobile meats came over and and uh, cut that thing up, cut and wrapped it. And I just remember box after box after box of elk meat and going like, "Oh my gosh, I have got to do this. Uh, this has got, this is so cool. Yeah. This is so much meat, and it was good. It, it was wasn't phenomenal. near as gamey as whitetail." And it was had a really nice flavor, and, and uh, so that's how it all began.
2: Yep. I think the very next summer, uh, I bought a bow at a local archery shop in Deer Park, and then there was a, a personal trainer, co-worker, who said he was selling his bow, and I bought that bow for you for Father's Day or something, and we were bow hunters. And the only reason why was because we wanted to hunt the elk rette. Yep, and because we'd killed that bull in late October in Washington, and we yes. they, they were already bachelor, yeah, they up. weren't even bugling. That rut had come and, and was done, and we'd listened to the elk bugling on that Primos tape, and we were like, "Oh my gosh!" So then we got every VHS tape I could muster on elk hunting, and uh, called my uncle up who lived in Idaho, and said, "Hey, I want to go elk hunting. Will you take me?" And he did, and oh my gosh, the learning curve began. So. One thing we always talk about on this podcast is how to make that learning curve smaller for guys and gals that come out west or live out west and maybe they've had some success but it hasn't been consistent or maybe they're like you and I were for year after year buying those expensive out-of-state elk tags, having a great time but coming home with no meat what uh, what would you what kind of advice would you have for those guys that are in that learning curve and it is steep?
1: You're never going to have success unless you try, and you've got to get out there, and you've you've got to pay your dues. Fortunately, and I and I do mean fortunately, uh, there's guys like you. Uh, there's there's other guys in the industry now. Finally that are blue-collar guys, that are having podcasts, that are, uh, that are giving information out um, that is very, very, very expensive to get on your own. Uh, they're sharing information where people, if they're astute and they listen and they apply what they've heard, uh, they have an opportunity to go out and be successful a lot quicker than you and I were. If we could have gone and um, attended Elk University mm-hmm. or, or Elk 101, right? And, or we had met Orion Lampers and they had come to our house and sat down and said, throw all of those calls away, just master this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we had had people that were willing to share information, but let's be honest. Once you get that information the hard way, and you've eaten twenty five hundred dollars worth of tag soup, and you've had near death experiences getting lost and and all of those things, you don't want to part with that information. you know you don't you you want to hold on to that because that's what separates you from everyone else. The information is there now through different sources for hunters to be successful, bow hunters in particular. But I also want to say that bow hunting for elk is the most supremely hard sport on the planet if you're going to be successful. It's uh, wrought with danger. It's hard, hard work. It's frustrating, but it is also like a good marriage. It, When it's spectacular, it's spectacular. It's hard to beat. Mm-hmm. There's, there's just nothing like it. The best thing I can say about elk hunting is uh, if you live in the West, uh, I would listen to these podcasts, not because you're my son, but because the best way to get into elk is to understand what elk do is to understand terrain topography uh, wind particularly wind I remember the first time you uh, you rode out an elk and we looked at the olfact I think they call them olfactory glands the thousands of hundreds of little sensors on the linings of an elk's nostrils yeah <laughs> and i kind of realized that uh wind is everything
2: so. they're all nose they're all nose for sure okay well we're gonna get to bears i promise but i love elk hunting so what are some of your learned best practices that bring tip the odds in your favor when it comes to elk camp and Um, how you conduct it and you know it's a short amount of time every year what are some things that you think that you do that lead to your success
1: one is uh, I ride a dirt bike Um, that's my horse Uh, I tease people that I have 65 horses between my legs when I go elk hunting that quickly and efficiently gets me further into back country than a guy can walk The older I get, the harder it is. Your balance isn't quite as good. But that piece of machinery is a very valuable asset to get you closer to where you can get into isolated spots that others might not frequent. And I think that's one thing. Um, The other thing is I think I can honestly say that now that I'm approaching the end of my life, I look at every encounter I have with an elk, even if I get to to shoot an arrow. Uh, every encounter I have is a sweet, magical moment because just hearing them, smelling them. I can smell an elk a half mile away, I swear. I can smell elk when I'm riding my dirt bike. But that would be the main thing, I is getting to places where elk like to hang out.
2: Well, what would a guy your age do if he didn't have an area that like uh like obviously North Idaho, western Montana other states have some really good single track so it's it's designated for dirt bikes. Let's say you're how old are you 62? 62. Let's say you're 62 and you don't have a dirt bike, what would you suggest those guys do to find quote isolated areas or elk that are unmolested or just um little pockets where elk are at like what would you do differently if you didn't have a dirt bike or area that allowed dirt bikes
1: um number one i would hike and i would look for elk sign um
2: would you hire an outfitter to do a drop camp or would you i
1: mean it's worth it you know
2: like what would you do different
1: um I definitely, I think if I was living east of the Mississippi or maybe in California or Texas, some of those states, I would definitely consider hiring an outfitter. Um, I, I would be careful um, because you and I have had experiences uh, when you were making hunting videos Um, we've had experiences and you quickly can learn that outfitters uh, may not be as knowledgeable as they advertise Mm -hmm. and uh, I remember a hunt down on the edge of Yellowstone Park where after two days with an outfitter you basically just looked at him and said hey um, how about you stay in camp and my dad and I will just hike out of here and Go hunt some elk, and sure enough, we were into bulls in no time. Yep. If we'd have had a couple more days, I know we'd have killed a big bull. But you need those outfitters to get you back to where elk are, and that's that's a great way to go.
2: I'm just thinking if you're driving a long ways, you know, to hunt somewhere, you don't have the luxury of like hiking in water or hiking in a spike camp or like you know what I mean. Yeah. So you have to either. Bivy hunt or spike camp off your own sweat equity. And, and maybe if you are retired or near your age, approaching retirement, that you give yourself more time to go deeper. Not necessarily going deeper is a must. I mean, look, the one of the biggest bulls I've ever seen in this out of this cabin was right across, like out our driveway. Yeah. So I don't want people to think you have to go backcountry so deep but it is nice to yeah. get into some areas where others aren't.
1: Yeah, and my, my buddy actually found that bull, the one that you were talking about. He told me about that bull. And you actually weren't supposed to go hunt that bull because I was going to town to get my bow fixed. Do you remember that?
2: Shoot a hoit and you don't have to get your bow yeah, fixed. Right.
1: So, um, but anyways, yeah, there, you know, here's the cool thing about elk hunting. So uh, when Dan and I first started, we uh, set up our first camp next to two guys that were in their 70s and they had been hunting this country for 35 40 years mm-hmm. and they were killing elk um, right out of their camp and you and I found their hunting spot and it was a nice level trail that you can just you know yep. you can just walk back in there and they had their same spot they'd been sitting in for years and they would sit there with their muzzle loaders and. muzzle They knew where the elk traveled, and they would sit in a travel corridor and ambush them, and, you know, they were very, very successful. I don't know if you remember the 85-year-old veterinarian that had a camp over on Sheafoot, and he had been coming there for 35 years. And these guys just learned that they can't go steep and deep, but they can gradually go steep, and they can get off uh, and find elk corridors and you know, spot and stock and just take their time, you know, you don't have to hurry. There is no hurry. Young guys hurry a lot when they're elk hunting, you know. I I listen to their podcasts and the some of the younger hunters and everything everybody's in a hurry. You gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta get there. Well that's not necessarily true. You don't. Um, as you know, there's bugle and bulls right next to the highway during during the rut. There's yeah. You know, that uh, remember the one bull uh, that would bugle every time the logging truck would come by empty, yeah. and the chains would bang against the yep. bunks, Yep, and he would sit down in the bottom of the canyon and scream his head off. Yep. Remember that bull? I
2: do. Never did so, kill him.
1: Nope.
2: Um, okay, well, we got to talk about a little bit more best practices for those that are intrigued by a dirt bike uh, that comes... A dirt bike just doesn't start right up and go. There's a lot to think about. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this topic, but just real quick dirt bike elk hunting for the last over a decade. What are some best practices
1: there? Well, uh, best practices are uh, you need an electric start on your dirt bike regardless. Um, you've seen me struggle with my kick starts. Yeah. Uh, you need an electric start vehicle for sure. You need to purchase a dirt bike that will handle an elk rack on the back. If you don't have an elk rack on your machine... And you're not
2: talking the rack of the elk. You're talking a rack like, called like cycle rack.
1: A steel rack yep. that will bolt to the back of your machine that you can put an elk quarter on. Mm-hmm. There are only a few models... Uh, They're mainly Japanese bikes, Uh, uh, Honda XRs, uh, Yamaha, uh, what's yours? There's TWs, TTRs, WRX.
2: You have a WR.
1: Here's the bottom line. They need to have a steel frame. And many of the dirt bikes you buy these days do not have steel frames. They have aluminum subframes. I had a KTM 420, which was a great bike. But I couldn't put any weight on the back because the subframe couldn't handle it. Yeah,
2: so like when you hurt your shoulder, because you didn't have a rack on your, it was a KTM 400. And uh, so you'd have to put a pack frame with meat on your shoulders and ride up, rut it out steep, steep. And (laughs) I think you hurt your shoulder that way.
1: Yeah, you definitely stretch your shoulders, particularly going downhill. But I would, you know, I like Honda 230, uh, 230s, I like uh, 250 XRs, 300 XRs are great if they're geared down right, your, your, your bike is the best.
2: I like the, my, I have a TTR 250, an XR 400 or XR 200 is fine, so we're talking older bikes or Old. better, air-cooled. Yes. four strokers I had a loud KTM 200 XCW you remember oh, that man. thing yeah. I told every elk in the neighborhood I was coming yeah. for them with that pipey yeah. so you know and then just probably you know get good good tires on there every yeah. year get make sure you have a new battery yeah. make sure you change your fluids run through your air filter yeah. and then maybe have some tools that you pack with you in case you pop a tire or take a stick into, like, remember the time?
1: Oh, man, I remember like it was yesterday when you supermanned over your handlebars. Oh, yeah,
2: that was just scouting. We were just scouting, but I'm talking yeah. about, I think this might have been last year, the year before, like, somehow your oil, I've had my, I've had a brush pierce my um, oil container, my oil box. My yes. Was it, no, it was my gearbox.
1: Your gearbox, yeah. And then
2: you had the same thing happen. And then I
1: lost my oil plug out of my bike. It vibrated out. And I had no oil in my engine. And we were deep. Yeah. I've had guys uh, guys that are jealous uh, puncture my tires with knives. Yep. You know, because I was back there before them. Um, but the, the important thing to realize is if I was an older guy my age, I'd go with the smallest bike that can get you the torque you need to get up and down a hill. So you can be comfortable and you can touch the ground and you know, uh, my wife has a little Honda 230 and I love taking that thing because I'm never gonna tip over on it. Right. You know, I, I I can touch the ground. If you're gonna go to the Yamaha's and you're gonna go to the new ones, the WRs are great, but if you're gonna go a WR like I have a WR two fifty. You probably want to go with some trials tires on it. You know, that's what a lot of guys do. And then they change the gearing on the rear end.
2: Yeah, I get, is it a bigger sprocket or a smaller sprocket?
1: It's a smaller sprocket and on the front and a larger sprocket right. on the back. And what that does is your top speed on the road decreases from 55, 60 miles an hour to 40, 45 miles an hour. But you can basically put it in second gear. And you can just tractor up gnarly ravines and switchbacks. And you can just tractor that machine. And go at a slow, safe pace, you know. Don't be in a hurry. Uh, You and I both know we've ridden with really advanced uh, dirt bike riders on all these trails around here. And we've bitten it and bitten it hard. And there's just no reason to do that. Because if you bust a shoulder and you're elk hunting or you have the wrong tip over... Your hunt's over, and you know it's not worth it.
2: You damn sure better practice your creek crossings before the season gets there. Yes. All right, we're going to get into bears. um, Spring bear, one of my favorite pastimes. By the way, where you elk hunting? What do you? What's your elk plans this year? We haven't really talked about it much.
1: Well, um, so far, as of right now, I did not draw New Mexico. And I'm disappointed in that because I've killed a bull there before and I just love the country and it's so, so freaking easy compared to here because you can actually see the elk and when you can see an elk, you can hunt an elk. Whereas here, we don't, we rarely see the elk, but we always hear the elk. Yep. So, so, um, I'm probably going to hunt here out of the cabin till you get back. And and I've got another tag or two that I've put in for, and we'll just see what happens. I don't know. We'll just see. You know, uh, I remember two years ago when I drew that nice tag down in middle Idaho.
2: Yeah. You want me to say what unit?
1: Yeah, go ahead. Unit 18. Unit 18, by the way. (laughs) By the way, if you look that up, Idaho Game and Fish will tell you that archers had a 36% success rate. And uh, out of the 36%, they were all six-point or better bulls. And I went down there, and I hunted 12 days straight. And I only saw two bulls, and uh, I found a bull that had 23 cows and almost killed him. And when I finally got my eyes on him at uh, 27 yards, he was maybe a 260 bull. <laughs> uh, the wolves were howling. They've decimated the unit. Uh, it's free-range country. Uh, there's 10,000 moo cows that have mm-hmm. just decimated the undercover and all the elk feed. And the population has really gone down the toilet. So I'm not much of a controlled hunt guy anymore in the state of Idaho. I'm just not a fan of it. Yeah. I don't believe the statistics. Yeah. Because I found out the hard way.
2: I mean, there's so. still a couple of good units. Um, but, man, that was f- almost false advertising. All right, so bear hunting 101. We we'll might even go 201. So we've been spring bear hunting here. Oh. Uh, Since 2007, I've killed like maybe 15 bears. I don't know, somewhere around there. You've killed probably close to double digit um, all on our own. And most of those through baiting, a handful of spot and stock. And that's really fun. That's probably like my new jam is spot and stock. But
1: That is your jam.
2: Seeing bears is not hard. In fact, I would say if you're patient and you know where to look, which is cover, water, grass. They need all three of those things and they like the remote areas. They'll pop out. They'll start feeding. You'll see them across the canyon or across the ravine or across the saddle. And that's cool. But can you get over there in time and get the wind right and then have them still be out there? Chances are no. The first bear I ever killed spot and stock, no joke, was I just went on a four-wheeler ride with Alicia, my wife, and I just turned the four-wheeler off and I looked down and we were in a bear area that I we call the magic road because it greens up first. It's an old logging road. If you go there late May, you'll see a hundred piles of bear crap. So obviously I found that bear crap late May and then the next year I kept it in my memory, came back. Um, I believe you shot a bear right then and there, a black bear with your rifle. We came in from above and then... So I always go back to that area first because it gets green up. I shut the four-wheeler off, and I'm like, all right, Alicia, uh, we're just going to get out here and get the wind in our face and just kind of walk the road, and we'll look down the road ahead. It's a great tactic. works really good in Montana, western Montana. Bring a mountain bike because they they have gates galore. And if you just ride a mountain bike, keep the wind in your face, go corner to corner and look down the roads, you're going to get on bears. But I literally shut that four-wheeler off and looked down the road, and there was the bear. And the wind was jamming from that bear to me. So 30 seconds later, I was within archery distance. And Alicia was over the shoulder filming, shot that bear at 30 yards. My point is that spot and stock doesn't always end up being like that. It's, a lot of times it's your glass in mountains. And you're looking for, you know, those little spots, food, cover, water. And it's bears are pretty simple. They want grass. They want to flip rocks. They want to grub. You just got to be out there. And another thing about glassing for bears for spot and stock is I think you need to stay in about the same area that you can see four or five miles in every direction and stay there all day and glass over the same stuff because a bear will just materialize out of nowhere. And you would have sworn, you're like, man, I, how did I miss this bear earlier? Well, you that bear, when a bear lays down or takes a nap or whatever, because they sleep a lot still this time of year, You're not going to see them, but you got to keep glassing and glassing. But baiting is really, really cool and fun, and you can't do it in Washington. You can't do it in Montana. You can do it in Wyoming, I believe. You can do it in Idaho. So let's talk about bear baiting, how to set up a bear bait, what you're looking for.
1: We've had a lot of success bear hunting, and I think that's what makes it so much fun. Mm -hmm. um, It's interesting. So... Basically, you need a 55-gallon steel drum. cannot be plastic in the state of Idaho. You need a 55-gallon drum, or you can go with a 25-gallon drum. And basically, you need to attach this drum to a tree using straps or something, and you want to have a way of locking the top of the barrel down because bears are incredibly smart and nimble, and they figure out how to destruct things like... I mean, I I can't believe what a bear can destroy. And
2: they're all shoulders. They're all shoulder.
1: Basically, what you need to do is you want to find yourself a clear-cut that adjoins thick, rich, dark timber, and you want to put your bear bait in a location, ideally where you can approach the bait and you want the bait to be on the edge of the tree line and you want to be able to approach the bait and see it from a distance and through your uh, binos. You want to be able to see if something's on the bait and you want to be able to uh, have an opportunity to do a spot and stock. Uh, to do a rifle shot or a bow shot, whatever your, whatever your desire is. But you also need to get uh, this positioned, not at the top of the clear cut, nor at the bottom of the clear cut, but at least one-third of the way down the clear cut so you can always get the wind in your favor. You need to get the wind in your favor because you don't have to worry about a bear's eyesight, but you have to worry about his nose. So I use uh, steel drums. Uh, I'll strap them to a tree or I'll, uh, you know, use, use screws or lag bolts to lag them to a tree. And then um, how much are we going to tell people here? Are we Are going to give them top secrets or what are we going to do?
2: You tell whatever you want and I'll <laughs> I will go with your flow.
1: Okay, so I like to help people because I want people to go bear hunting. I think it's just so much fun in the spring. You're so burnt out from winter, and just to get out in the woods is wonderful. So what do you need for a bear bait? Well, I'll tell you what you need. You need uh, to find a day-old bread store somewhere in your neighborhood. They're all over. And you need to purchase a large quantity of day-old donuts, breads, uh, anything that's grainy, and purchase those. And then top, top secret is you want to take those and you want to break them out of their plastic bags, put them in a large plastic container, uh, probably a very heavy-duty garbage sack or a big trash can, and if you don't want to work yourself to death, you can go to the store and buy some confection sugar, a confectionate sugar. And you want to coat the layers of bread that you put in there uh, with some confectionate sugar to keep it from molding, to keep it from rotting. And then you go apply it to your bear bait. Uh, when you first set up a bear bait, this is like money. I mean, If you're listening to this podcast and you want to hunt bears, this is the money shot right here. So when we set up bear baits, and I don't want to deceive you, you can set up bear baits without a metal container. Like if you don't want to hassle with all that, take a chainsaw back there, cut a bunch of logs, six-foot lengths. um, Find a location where there's a little bit of a depression And you can put the bait down into the depression and just pile the logs on top. What's really, really cool about that is you can see from a long distance away that uh, the bears have hit the bait. The logs will be not in the order that you left them. You'll be able to tell there's action there. And you bring new bait with you each time you come in. So you can do that as well. But I bait those bears, and then I guess the thing that, Uh, I would share is whenever we set up a new bear bait we put scents around the bait and one of the things we like to do is take a copper pan and a propane torch and we'll fill the pan up with some honey and liquid smoke and we'll heat it up to just boiling and the smoke will come billowing out of the pan and we let that scent broadcast down with the natural wind the bears smell it they're inquisitive. It clings to tree branches. They'll follow it in and ultimately find the bait.
2: Awesome. So how much bait does a guy need to put out?
1: Okay, so if you're going to be successful at bear baiting, you can't wait a week in between baiting your your bear bait. So what we do up here is uh, we usually, <laughs> well, obviously we can only hunt the weekends. So... We'll set up a bait uh, on Sunday, and then the following Wednesday night, uh, one of us, uh, mainly me, um, I'll drive up here after work, uh, grab a four-wheeler or a dirt bike, throw the bear bait on, drive all the way to the bait, check, check the trail camera to see if we've had any activity. I'll rebait the bait, come back to the cabin, spend the night, get up early in the morning and go to work the next day. So you need to hit that bait at least once in the middle of the week. You cannot wait a week in between baits. So there's there's, you know, a million ways to do that, but the bottom line is once you get a bear a bear hitting a bait, you want to continue feeding that bear because once one bear finds it, the chances of two or three bears finding it are far greater.
2: Absolutely. So then two two five gallon buckets of bait you know, is that sufficient?
1: Yeah, two five gallon buckets is great. And if you if you can't get that onto your dirt bike or you uh, you you know you you can't get it onto your four wheeler, then you know, a five gallon bucket at least. At least at a minimum.
2: And there's a guy out there who in southern Idaho, his name's Russ Myers, he's probably the best bear hunter I know. Um, he does things completely different than the way we do it. Um, and he's on a podcast. He's probably on several, but I listened to him on the Rich Outdoors podcast years ago. And he broke it down for what he does pretty good. And he goes to great Lanes to go to backcountry spots, and he takes 2,000 pounds. So he has multiple horses loaded down, but 2,000 pounds of bait. So he gets all that bait, and he sets it in a remote area. And he, his obje- his objective is to not have to ever bait again. So he does a lot of work to keep, you know, a lot of powdered sugar, um, a lot of making sure that birds can't get into it. Even like carp. I think you can use carp. Real stinky. He'll bury carp all over the place. He'll hang beaver, whatever. And then he hunts it from afar, like what we were saying. And just he just is an observer and he never goes in, he doesn't put a camera out, doesn't check it, every bear he sees it with his own two eyes, so check that podcast out, that's one way to do it, for sure, that's not the way we do it, but, uh, and yeah, there's other scents you can use, there's other, you know, grease, obviously, bears get it on their pads, track it through the woods, another bear can pick that scent up and follow it all the way to the bait, so, in the middle of the night, we it's almost midnight here, it is midnight, and we're recording, so we're gonna have to wrap this up quick, so, um, for those that want to set a tree stand, I mean, we haven't done it in a few years. I think we're going to do at least one tree stand set this year, but mainly we've done what I call ground and pound like you described earlier where you can see from four or 500 yards away uh, where you have a good skid road or something to sneak to it and shoot with a bow if you want to get up close and personal, which I do, or you can set a tree stand up. What is some – I mean, the wind is tricky in the mountains. What what's some things that people need to do to get their tree stands set up?
1: Okay, the the crucial thing about the tree stand, as far as I'm concerned, is, you know, it's pretty basic. You know, when when it warms up in the morning, uh, around nine thirty, ten o'clock, the thermals it can start earlier than that. The thermals are going to go up straight up the mountain as the atmosphere heats up. It's going to suck all of the cold air from lower elevations straight up the mountain and then of course in the afternoon around three o'clock or so um, as their you know the t- air temperature starts to cool down the thermals are going to go straight down a mountain so you want to be basically east or west of that location you want to be uh, perpendicular to your bear bait so that the, the thermals are taking your scent straight down, and it's not going to the bait or straight up, and it's not going to the bait. You want to be sideways to the bait, and you want to be 30 or 40 yards uh, from the bait so that you, you know, you're, you're never going to get your scent right down there. But don't, don't think that that's automatic because all of us, my wife, uh, my son, my daughter-in-law, Countless people we've taken bear hunting have found out that you can get a swirling wind in the middle of the day, and it can go to the bait, and you can run bears off like nobody's business. But the general rule of thumb is just, just to be sideways to the bait so that uh, when the thermals go down, they're not taking your scent to the bait, and when they go up, they're not taking your scent to the bait. And,
2: you know, a couple of things to keep in mind, these are just little tidbits, is one, don't put your bear bait right off a road or anything. Read the regs. you got to be a certain distance from water, a certain distance from roads, forest service roads. And hound hunters, you get your bait too close to a road and a hound hunter drives by with his dogs in the back of the truck, they're going to run every bear off your bait, and uh, you're just going to be basically assisting them on getting their bear. The other thing is... Uh, I like what you said, 30, 40 yards away from the bear bait. That's going to give you a better shot angle if you're 20 feet up, which I would assume most people. But if you're going to be closer, I would bring your tree stand down lower because it is bears are tough to kill. You have to hit them just right, and steep angle shots are not great on bears. And the other thing is, is bears' vitals aren't up against the shoulder. You can't aim tight to the shoulder on a bear. I've heard many successful bear hunters tell their clientele to aim for the middle of the middle. And it's going to sound crazy and your instincts are going to tell you no when you, that situation arises. But literally I've shot bears right in the middle, which I thought would be a gut shot on any other animal. And they've died in less than 10 seconds. So yes. their lungs are down low and back a little bit. And so I like to aim a little lower and a little back on, on bears specifically. And I like the quartering away shot um, because you can probably, it you know, Even if you're gonna, your arrow ends up in their opposite shoulder, you're gonna get a good angle. But if you're gonna hit a bear in the shoulder, and you think you heart shot him, or you're shooting some awesome broadhead that, you're not gonna kill him.
1: No, you're not. So um, we've had a lot of experience tracking people's bears that have shot them what they thought was behind the shoulder. It never is behind the shoulder. Um, I've hit him right in the shoulder, and you really want to aim well back, and it's so hard to do because it's so non-instinctual. You just want to put that thing right in the crease behind the elbow, and you think it's going to happen, and then you wind up tracking a bear for three miles or two miles and realize the blood's dried up, this bear's lives lives to see another day and so that that shot is important the other thing that I think is really important and this is a huge tip for you guys that uh, really want to be successful bait hunting so every time I go to the bait I take liquid smoke and I take honey and I put it in my copper pot and my I pull out my propane torch and I smoke for 10 to 15 sometimes 20 minutes And I just let the smoke billow out. Then I feed the bears, put the bait in the barrel, and I leave. So we have evidence multiple times of bears being on the bait when I'm approaching on my dirt bike. They hear it. They turn around. They leave. I refill the bait. And within 15 minutes, they're right back on the bait. So... So putting out a scent that basically rings their dinner bell is very important for success.
2: And to piggyback off that awesome tip that I think is important is partner up. How many times have we done that, trained our bears, and then you dropped me off or I dropped you off, the bears here, the four-wheeler leaving, Leave. but there's a little human up in the tree waiting for him, and you're tagged out in yep. 15 minutes.
1: Yeah, so that's the way it goes, bear hunting, and it's such a cool sport. I would just encourage people to get out and try it.
2: Yep, so the reason why we hunt bears is really simple. Predator management, bears live a long time. A lot of people think that a a four-and-a-half, five-and-a-half-year-old whitetail is super old or mature. Well, that's a baby bear. Bears live double-digit years. I've killed bears in their 20s, and bears multiply really well they're awesome they're proficient breeders and they pop out you know twins almost every year and you know they their population is definitely never really hurting they survive they're survivalists and so one thing that people are not sure about is do bears eat deer fawns elk calves the answer is yes and it's I don't think they actually just hunt after them all the time. I just think that it's a uh, bears are the only mammal breeding in the spring, early June, late May. And that's when the calves and the fawns are getting dropped. And if you're a boar and you're cruising ridgelines trying to find a sow in heat, you're going to stumble upon several calves that got dropped. You know what I mean? And so I have seen with my own two eyes, a calf carcass that had just been eaten by a bear multiple times. And It's veal. It's fresh steak. Would you pass up on that if you were a bear? Hell no. So definitely uh, there's a lot of studies out there that prove what I'm talking about is true. Bears eat a lot of the fawns, and so it's important for us to manage that. But, yeah, yeah. well, Dad, we got you on the podcast. I've been wanting to do that since day one. Cool. Anything else you want to say?
1: Yeah, I just want to remind you of uh, the bear you hunted. Uh, when you were in, up in that tree stand where that bear shredded when I tried to hunt out of your blind and that bear shredded that blind and just demolished it and then we put a tree stand up there and remember there was a cow that came down and she was in heat and she was about ready to she wasn't calve. in heat she
2: was she was ready to have she was pregnant
1: well I mean excuse me I didn't mean heat I mean she was ready to calve mm-hmm and she was, you know, uh, uh, nervous and, and jittery and, and looking th- like she was ready to give birth.
2: Yeah. she Her back end kept kind of like she would lead with her back end, like not know where to stand and just kind of scoot around yeah. like in a circle, like getting ready to drop.
1: Yeah. And then what happened?
2: Um, well, a bear walked from perpendicular to her with the wind with his face he walked right past my bear bait. Um, didn't I? Didn't shoot him. I was like, I gotta see how this plays out. He walks past my bear bait and goes about thirty yards from that cow, and she's fifty yards from me. And he just plopped down into the bushes and almost disappeared, and was staring right at her, just waiting.
1: For Wait for that calf
2: to come. Just out. waiting for his next meal. Except for Dan's full metal jacket came flying out of his tree stand and smoked them. but yeah that was the yeah that was an eye-opening event
1: yeah so that's the truth and bears are predators and uh they're excellent predators they're opportunists and they're very stealthy and quiet and fun to hunt
2: i uh, love it i can't wait well we got to get to bed we got to right. do some bear bait tomorrow guys thanks for listening we'll catch you on the next one
1: okay